Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. Today's episode is episode number 33, Restoring Habitat with Jared Wickland. Jared Wickland is the public relations manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And in this conversation, we talk about how pheasants are a barometer of habitat and sort of how good the habitat is in a given area. We talk about how Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever help landowners to create habitat through uh, precision agriculture and federal programs. And we also talk about how Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever benefit everyone, not just those of us that want to hunt, but how they can actually benefit everyone around. I was really looking forward to coming to the headquarters uh, last week, but... Um, yeah, sorry that didn't work out. That uh, was yeah. weather, weather pattern we had. Yeah, that was... Uh, my my dad came with me. Um, we had waited. We weren't going to buy our license until we got to North Dakota because we knew that weather could be a factor. Yep. We just didn't expect to actually get to our hotel and then find out that we weren't going to be able to hunt. Yeah, there was so much snow. Anyways, I talked to guys that were in like northeast South Dakota, um, and they said it was just miserable. I mean, there there's like places where they're up to their chest and snow like when they fall through they said it was they said it was miserable <laughs> yeah we uh we so we slept at a rest stop in wisconsin um probably maybe an hour east of Claire, wisconsin and um woke up at about four o'clock and decided to get on the road and when we checked the weather then they were calling for three to five inches of snow on sunday and that was pretty much it and then by the time we got to oaks north dakota at around 11 o'clock, it had changed to like 15 to 20 inches of snow and 15 mile an hour winds. And it was like, we, we can't afford to get stuck out here. No, um, no, that's cold. Yeah. So we decided it was, it would be best if we just turned around and who knows, maybe try this trip again next year. I just saw, um, I just saw a weather alert that came across my, um, came across my phone it says up Duluth tonight north of there it's supposed to be negative 25 to 35 degrees and then they're supposed to get six inches of snow so oh man I mean I, I can I we have like we have winter you know we're we're I'm from is uh, about 40 minutes east of Pittsburgh and yeah. we have winter but we don't have winter like that. That's <laughs> that, I, that's a, on a whole nother level. Yeah, it, it's intense, but it's it's one of those things. If you dress for it, I don't know. I like some. I like a few days like that because there's nobody out. So. Yeah, why don't we just start with the history of Pheasants Forever? Yeah, no problem. So, uh, Pheasants Forever was born right here in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, in 1982. Um, the year before. Uh, one of our former board members named Dennis Anderson, uh, who is now the outdoor writer for uh, the Star Tribune newspaper uh, in St. In Paul in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, basically wrote a column about how uh, the lack of habitat and the bad winter we had that year, there were pheasants dying on the side of the road. And uh, he wrote in, uh, he wrote in kind of story fashion about how, have you ever seen a pheasant uh, freezing on a roadside with, with, with no cover uh, available to the bird, and that sort of striked uh, that striked a lot of a lot of people um, to comment in, uh, and it was because of that story. That's uh, kind of where our, our our roots set off, and people wanted to form an organization that was dedicated to helping to restore pheasant populations in the state of Minnesota. Um, so Pheasants Forever was born, and uh, we soon reached down. Uh, not only in Minnesota, but uh, down into Iowa, down the Dakotas, into Nebraska, into Wisconsin. Uh, and right now, I think we're in just about every state, uh, including Hawaii, uh, in the United States. And we're comprised of 784 chapters right now of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks see the symbol of 
the pheasant with the sun rising behind it and they kind of wonder well what are what, what are you all about is it just hunters going out and shooting pheasants well there's a lot of us that enjoy pheasant hunting um and pheasant hunters make up about 85 percent uh of our membership but um, we've got local chapters situated throughout the United States run by um, local volunteers. It's a grassroots organization who hold one membership fundraiser per year, um, and they retain 100% of their fundraising dollars to put back into conservation efforts at a local level. Um, so the only money that comes back to Pheasants Forever headquarters would be membership dollars, which is uh, $35 uh, for an associate membership. Uh, with, with that, you get a calendar, a decal, you get invited to your local banquet and you get five issues of the Pheasants Forever Journal. And that's kind of our main, um, communication tool throughout the year, uh, for members to see what's going on on the side of Pheasants Forever, uh, learn about different habitat initiatives going on and, and learn about the different things that we're doing on the landscape. But, you know, right now we've got uh, just shy of 137,000 members of Pheasants Forever uh, located nationwide. Um, the organization has impacted 19 million acres since 1982. Um, we have a very robust farm bill biologist program uh, in addition to our chapters doing work and our biologists provide free conservation planning for landowners uh, interested in, in upland habitat improvements. So. Um, with that, we just surpassed 200,000 acres of public land acquisition. Uh, so that's that's property for, for you, me, and our kids to go out and explore and recreate on. Uh, and if you were to just draw, if you were to walk the outside edge of those acres, just the outside edge, um, it would take you all the way from Canada uh, down to the Mexican border. So um, we're pretty proud of that fact and, um, you know, habitat projects working with state agencies, federal agencies and local landowners um, is what's been able to uh, help us make the impact that we've been able to have um, in the last 38 years. There, there's a lot from what you just said that I want to unpack. And the yeah. first thing I have to back up to is you have a chapter in Hawaii. <laughs> we do. We do have a chapter in Hawaii right now. It actually started about two years ago. We had one in Anchorage as well uh, on the uh, other side of the spectrum. Um, but, uh, you know, Hawaii is an interesting place. I think they've got seven, seven different species of upland birds there that folks, folks can hunt uh, on the big island. And a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't realize that, but it actually is kind of a, a bird, bird hunting paradise, so to speak, in addition to, uh, in addition to a great vac vacation place. Yeah, now when my wife uh, decides she wants to go to Hawaii for a vacation, I will be taking my shotgun <laughs> and my bird dogs with that's me. That's right. You've got um, something to do. You've got something that, to do. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, before we unpack any more, one thing that I always find interesting um, about pheasants, and, and I'm a hunter. I have uh, two Britneys uh, that I've been taking out for about five years now, and mm -hmm. I absolutely love pheasant hunting. Uh, it, it's a fun activity uh, because it, it's so contrasting to deer hunting where you're sitting by yourself and you have to be quiet. Um, you know, there, not that you can have a big party in the field, but you know, you're able to talk a little bit and it's a little more communal during the hunt. Yep. But pheasants aren't native to North America. So, so it, it's interesting that people are interested in doing conservation work for an animal that isn't, isn't from here. Why do you think that is? You know, in, in the late 1800s, that's when uh, pheasants were introduced in the state of Oregon and uh, eventually kind of work, worked, worked their way over with trap and transfer uh, into certain places. And um, you know, uh, uh, pheasants being from China, um, you know, a, a lot of people will refer to them as an invasive species, and, and um, I, that couldn't be more incorrect. I would call them, they would call them an introduced species um, that have become an icon of the Midwest. And the, the one thing that I love about pheasants and, and, and grasslands is that pheasants are a real barometer, colorful barometer for environmental health. Um, when we have lots of pheasants on the landscape, we know that we're doing uh, great things for wildlife habitat. We're doing great things for water quality uh, and great things for soil health. Uh, 
along with providing uh, a lot of income to different regions uh, of the United States that have pheasant populations that's supported by hunters. So, um, you know, not only not only are they great uh, from an ecological standpoint, um, but also from funding natural resources and for conservation funding, I think pheasants play a, a critical role. And, and uh, like I said, I mean, they're just, they're a very colorful barometer of environmental health and have become an icon um, uh, especially of, especially of the Midwest. Um, there's a lot of places where pheasants still exist, but I would say the Midwest is the stronghold and has always always been a stronghold for the bird. And, you know, a lot of people refer to them as the king of game birds. I know there's some that talk about the rough grouse as well, and I'm, I'm a big rough grouse hunter as well. But when you talk about when you talk about a king, right, I, I, I think of a, a colorful presence. And uh, I don't think there's anything more 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 colorful or more appropriate than uh, the the ringneck pheasant, a rooster ringneck pheasant. I'll uh, I'll polite, politely disagree with you. Being from Pennsylvania, the the rough no grouse rough grouse is our state bird, um, yep. and uh, I've had much more success hunting pheasants over the years. And I have rough grouse. They're just they're so tough um, to find, and then when you do find them, they're very sneaky in ways to get away. Um, not sneaky from an audio standpoint that they, they scare the crap out of you, but um, they find <laughs> ways to get away from you. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's almost like they're a naturalized citizen at this point. Um, and yeah, non-native introduced species. You know? Yeah. Um, so sort of piggybacking on that barometer of habitat stance that, that what you mentioned, hmm? Pennsylvania used to be, not as good as what the Midwest is now, but it used to be a pretty good place to hunt pheasants uh, for uh, for many years. And now we have virtually zero wild pheasants in our state. Mm -hmm. I hunt pheasants in Pennsylvania, but they are all stocked birds that our game commission puts out on game lands that, that we can hunt. Mm -hmm. Why... Why does Pennsylvania not have uh, wild birds now? Like, what I mean, is it predators? Are predators the biggest issue for pheasants? Is it habitat loss? Is it uh, disease? I mean, is it farming practices? I mean, what is it that is sort of like the biggest threat to pheasants? You know, I think I think when you talk pheasants, people always use predators as sort of the scapegoat, and predators are going to take you know roughly ten percent of the population every year, and there's not not much you can do about it besides put good habitat on the landscape. It's what we call dilution, making a bigger area for for not only the birds to roam but for predators to hunt as well. But um, you know the the name of the game when it comes to up, upland birds, um, and you know I would throw rough grouse in this category as well, is that uh, and quail and all those other species is that um, habitat and weather are the two main factors that affect pheasant populations on on a year-to-year -year basis. And long-term, long-term um, populations, it's it's all about habitat. And that's the one thing that some of those states, uh, sort of in the east e eastern half of the United States, have have been missing for a few years. And that um, a lot of the grasslands that states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana. Uh, Illinois is starting to come back to some degree. Um, you know, Michigan used to shoot over a million birds a year. Um, is that a lot of those grasslands have disappeared, and and you know, a lot of these birds are, are early successional birds. So, um, j just like uh, similar to a rough grouse, when you when you do logging for them, it comes back and um, you know, popple and aspen, and, and that's a early successional habitat that that helps. Uh, you know, push that push that bird to higher populations. The same can be said for uh, uh, you know pheasants or other upland birds as well. In that, um, they're a grassland dependent, agricultural habitat dependent bird. But the number one limiting factor right now for pheasants uh, in the United States is nesting cover. We just don't have enough of it. Undisturbed nesting cover really uh, is the, is the main key. And you know, pheasants grow best in forty acres blocks uh, and especially as you move further east um, you know 40 acre blocks of habitat especially as it relates to key programs um, that the bird is known for or one being the conservation reserve program as, as part of the federal farm bill um, you just you just don't 
find as much grasslands in certain areas of the country. Uh, and, you know, pheasants have, pheasants have disappeared uh, as the grasslands have gone away. Yeah, that's something that during our drive out to North Dakota, we noticed areas where what we would traditionally see in Pennsylvania would be farmed are unfarmed. And that's that conservation reserve program there. It just seems like in the East, it's not taken advantage of uh, as a program as, as much as it is in the Midwest. Is there a way for farmers to still farm their land, but then also provide habitat for the birds without actually not actively farming the land and, you know, and enrolling it in the conservation reserve program? Yeah, you know, here at Pheasants Forever, I think one of our main beliefs is that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can be the most agriculturally productive nation uh, in the world, yet still have uh, all the pheasants and bobwhite quail uh, and turkeys and deer and, and clean water and things that go with that. And, and one thing that we've really started to break into lately uh, in terms of habitat is helping helping farmers, helping landowners uh, on the side of precision agriculture. Um, so basically focusing not so much on the acre by acre scale, but on the square foot by square foot scale. Um, so breaking down fields for landowners and, and taking, uh, taking their uh, agricultural input data, let's say from the last 10 to 12 years, putting it into a system, running, running the numbers and helping show folks that, you know, certain areas of the field uh, over the long term have been, have been losing, losing money. Um, and we like to we like to take those areas, put it into our system, and then our biologists reach out to these folks uh, and work with them to to set them up uh, with with cost share. It could be state, uh, it could be state or federal. It could work through a pheasants forever chapter, uh, but helping helping them uh, provide a profit on that ground. Maybe that maybe they're haying it off throughout the year and, and selling the hay. There's different things that you can do, uh, but basically, you know, taking it out of taking it out of production uh, and entering it into to some type of um, uh, habitat or a conservation plan and helping people get the most of those acres and, and, and allocating that capital that they would have put in there to the best acres of their field. And, um, you know, sort of the future, the future of, of wildlife in an agricultural setting in the United States um, is going to rely heavily on precision agriculture. And it, it has to do a lot with connectivity and uh, just providing corridors for wildlife. So to go back to your original statement, you mentioned that local chapters hold a one time a year event to fundraise for their chapter and 100% of what they raise stays local, stays with that chapter. Correct. That's unlike every other conservation organization banquet I've ever been to, right? A percentage always yep. goes back to the national headquarters. Why does Pheasants Forever feel it's important that that money stays with the local chapter? You know, when Pheasants Forever was started back in 1982, I guess that was the one over overarching thing that, and you pointed out, that, you know, made us different from, let's say, a Ducks Unlimited or a National Wild Turkey Federation in that uh, we wanted to stay uh, committed to 100% grassroots efforts. And um, I think it's, it's, number one, I think it's, it's easier for people to to grasp onto is that listen if you're going to go out and do all this do all this work and and have a committee and and uh, put on a banquet and raise the funds people want to see it um, see the effects locally so cost share cost share for landowners on habitat projects that they have um, working with a local DNR manager natural natural resource manager of, of uh, your state resource agency to perhaps let's say do a uh, do a do a land acquisition of sorts, um, uh, allowing folks to go and put on uh, youth youth hunts or uh, mentored hunts, learn to hunt clinics uh, in their local areas to get uh, more kids and adults, uh, adult onset hunters out on the landscape. And um, I think we're 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 seeing the effects of that right now. You've got a lot of millennials. You've got a lot of kids uh, that are learning to get outdoors. By attend, attending a Pheasants Forever function outside of a banquet, but um, you know any one of those youth youth mentor hunt trainings, we get a lot of folks 
um, that like to do dove, dove hunts as well because it's easy and usually high volume and, and fun for people to try out. So there's a lot of different things that can be done um, to get people in, involved in conservation. And I think the local model that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has has proven that uh, for the last 38 years and will continue to do so. Now, when you're talking about land acquisitions, and you mentioned earlier that you had that Pheasants Forever has 200 over 200,000 public land acquisitions of acres public land acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, is that Pheasants Forever property, or how does that work? No, Pheasants Forever as a nonprofit is is not allowed as a 501c3 is not allowed to actually own our own property. Uh, we can, however, put it into a trust for a short amount of time, and that's usually what happens. So, um, you know, a lot of times it's a, it's a pretty organic process. Um, it's usually a conservation-minded landowner that will come to Pheasants Forever um, and ask us, hey, I, you know, I've, I've got this property. It's been in our family for a long time. Our, our kids are grown up and moved away. They may not be hunting anymore. They may just want to uh, con- conserve the property. Um, I think Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is a great resource for that. So we'll have landowners come to us, offer a property. Um, we'll work, uh, you know, usually with a, a, a state wildlife agency, um, particularly the DNR uh, or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, you know, a lot of those areas will become waterfall production areas. And then with the DNR, it'd be like a wildlife management area. Um, and we make sure that they're able to accept, accept it as a donation from us. Um, and, you know, using, using grants, using local chapter money, um, hopefully working with the landowner, provide us a bargain buy on the acres if they're really conservation minded. Um, we'll go in, purchase those acres, hold it in trust for a, a short amount of time while we provide all the necessary uh, habitat upgrades to that property to make it really the best and most productive it can be for wildlife um, before we turn the deed over uh, to a uh, you know county state or federal agency and that's how all these acres become public property That's awesome. Uh, you know, being on the sort of eastern coast here, uh, around southwestern Pennsylvania, there is just area being developed continually, and land that had trees on it or that was, you know, fallow fields is just continually being subdivisioned out, and old farms, uh, you know, that are just literally stripping the land down to nothing so that they can put a new. Uh, suburban subdivision in and it's very disappointing to see all that habitat loss for all kinds of wildlife um, that used to be there and, and now isn't yeah you know it's 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 hard to watch at some points and you're, you're obviously right i think between land use changes and that would include agriculture that would include um you know s- s- expansion of suburban areas um are probably the, the the two biggest factors um, when we talk about loss of loss of wildlife habitat, but um, it is hard to see. But on the same side, um, you know, I think there's organizations out there, Pheasants Forever and our, our sister organization, Quail Forever included, um, that are working hard to maintain uh, you know public areas and public access. Public access is a big thing we're dealing with right now as as well, where. Um, you know, you've got uh, entities, individuals, businesses that might come in and buy a huge chunk of property uh, around a public area and basically cut off cut off access to that area. So we're working with a lot of landowners right now to to try and um, uh, to try and, and and get over some of those um, some of those things and and provide access and, and just more acres in general for for people to recreate on. So. A couple of examples would be, you know, a good one would be Iowa. Um, we've done a lot of land acquisition in the state of Iowa, especially we work with the DNR and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, uh, especially up in the Northwest Corridor in the Great Lakes region. And um, I think it's next to next to Rhode Island, um, Iowa ranks second to last um, for the percentage of, of land and public ownership. Um, you know, in a state like Pennsylvania, we've got a lot of... Uh, 
we've got a lot of habitat specialists. We've got farm bill biologists out there as well, uh, working with landowners and working with state agencies to make these areas the best they can be. And are, are you familiar with uh, Pennsylvania's uh, wild pheasant recovery areas? Yes, I am. Um, you know, that would be another one where pheasants forever uh, help provide some of the money and some of the expertise and a lot of chapter dollars um, to work with landowners, to work with um, uh, to work with the Pennsylvania Game Commission to, to upgrade some of those areas and bring trap and transfer wild birds in. And, you know, thankfully, we haven't opened it up uh, to to hunting yet on a wide scale. But the last three years, we've been able to host a, a youth only uh, pheasant hunt in some of those pheasant uh, recovery areas, wild pheasant recovery areas, and it's just been a it's been a great success. Yeah, I would like to see the entire state be able to hold wild pheasants. Um, I know that's a long way off, but it would be nice to see that happen down the road at some point if we can sort of keep um, helping the habitat in the public areas and even, you know, the private land that we have around uh, that mm -hmm. would help pheasants. And, you know, in, in the game lands, we, we have a large amount of state game lands in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have well, we have over a million acres now. So yep. that is great for public access. Unfortunately, and as far as upland birds are concerned, the vast majority of it is managed for sort of towards deer hunting. Yeah, um, but I, I have noticed in the last couple of years on a couple of the game lands where the game commission uh, puts out some stocked birds that all of a sudden you're seeing pheasants forever signs popping up and you can tell that grasses were planted and food plots were put in geared towards upland birds. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, one thing, I, I, two things I'll point out, you know, related to that is, is, one is, um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to grassland birds, and I'm not talking just pheasants, I'm talking all the different songbirds that are out there, pollinators, that type of thing, is that um, you can't you can't just walk you can't just plant a prairie or a grassland and, and walk away from it and expect it to be productive. Um, you know, years down the line, um, grassland habitat is something that needs to be maintained. Um, through active management and prescribed fire is probably the best one, but, um, you know, uh, mowing, uh, strip disking, those types of things are all, um, you know, performing active, active management. And I think that's probably the difference between conservation and, and, and preservation, um, to a degree. And the other thing I'll point out too, is that I, I think we're starting to see a shift in this country, you know, not just in the Midwest pheasant range, but all, all throughout the core pheasant range and extending uh, over into the eastern regions as well, is that the habitat that's being put on the landscape right now uh, in the 21st century here um, is providing more resiliency for wildlife. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, back the mixes that you use for grasslands and stuff, even going back a, a dozen dozen years uh, or so um, have been really grass focused. And we know over time that that grass will win out in a monoculture over time just because it's it's got an invasive nature to it. So um, a lot of the different things that are being planted right now, and I don't care if it's uh, the Conservation Reserve Program acres, uh, state wildlife area, U.S. Fish and uh, U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, um, you know, waterfall production area and that when we're planting habitat in those areas and Pheasants Forever specifically is involved, the types of species we're putting on and, and forbs and wildflowers and less grass and making those more diverse, more bugs, um, which we all know fuel, kind of fuel the... Uh, the food chain, uh, especially as it relates to upland birds, is we're putting habitat out there uh, that's providing more resiliency for wildlife. And we're starting to see that, you know, last year here in the Midwest, we had one of the toughest late late uh, season winters we've seen in a while. Um, and, you know, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa all got hammered late season. Plus, we had a really bad spring and all sorts of water. Yet, you know, all three states were only down 17 percent. It, it, it could have been a whole it could have been a whole heck of a lot worse. But I think it has a lot to do with the habitat we're putting on the landscape. And a lot of that we would refer to as, as pollinator habitat. That's not only good for, you know, bees and butterflies and bats and hummingbirds.
and all other things that that pollinate flowers uh, but it's it's also ex exchange pollen from one plant to another but it's also great for upland birds um, and we're starting to see that right, so I'm a landowner not not a farmer uh, we have about 70 acres at our family cabin and the vast majority of that is wooded and it is we do we actively manage it but it's actively managed with an eye more towards deer than anything else we don't have a wild pheasant population. There's, there's not even a stocked pheasant within 40 miles of, of our cabin. But what can we do to enhance the habitat for birds, whether that be turkeys or quail, which again, we don't have any around, but even songbirds and that what, what are things that we could do in certain areas that aren't forested to be able to help upland birds? Um, you know, without, uh, without putting a lot of money towards seed and other things, you know, the, the, the first thing you can go out there and do is do some management yourself, uh, or hire, uh, work with a, a pheasants forever chapter, or maybe a habitat specialist to, to do some different things. So I would imagine you have pockets of grass out there, correct? Yes. Um, so some of the things I already mentioned a little bit earlier, but prescribed burning is a big one. Um, you know, getting that duff, duff layer uh, of dead grass uh, off of the ground level that's been there for how many ever years, if you've never managed it before, is one. Um, not, only are, not only are you going to open up the space at ground level, which is what, you know, uh, pheasants, rabbits, turkeys, other things need. Um, you know, when they, when, when, or even quail, you know, quail, quail is about the size of a bumblebee when it comes out of a shell. And a lot of people think that just, you know, straight, straight switchgrass or something like that is just going to be incredibly helpful to a, to a young bird, but they got to have, um, for quail, especially they say 50% bare ground at a minimum for them to move around. So, um, you know, doing management activities, um, disturbing the ground to get that, get that seed bank reinvigorated. Um, I would imagine, if you haven't done any, if you haven't done any management on any of your grassland acres, I would imagine you're seeing a lot of the same species out there that are are coming up. Would that be correct? Yes, absolutely. So one thing you can do just through active management, whether you want to uh, strip disc it, go through and mow it, um, strip disc and interseed it, um, you know, work with a biologist to create a conservation plan. It's just to do some form of 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 management on those acres. Um, that's, that's the big thing as succession goes with time. Um, you're going to see more of a monoculture out there. And, and when we talk about just, uh, just having one species, uh, one species of, of grass out there, um, is, uh, is not, uh, conducive to, to quality habitat. So you already mentioned about, uh, youth field days and getting more millennials out into the field chasing upland birds but what what does the future hold for upland hunters is it trending up is it we hear that that hunting numbers and license sales are trending down is that the same for upland hunters can it get better what can we do yeah yeah i think um you know people talk about the the, the glory days and as a uh, myself who who's worked in iowa and minnesota and you listen to people talk about the glory days and the uh, you know, in the 19, 1990s, um, kind of up through the 2000s, when a lot of these states were shooting over a million birds, million roosters per year, you, t you know, the glory days are pretty good. But, you know, right now there's states, uh, Iowa included being one of them, where, you know, not all the hunters have come back, but if, if they would, that state would be shooting three quarters of a million roosters right now, which, which is a, a lot of birds and a, a lot of entertaining time uh, in the field with, with friends and, and family. Um, yes, uh, you are absolutely right that on a national level, we have seen a de decline in, in hunters and license sales. Um, I think a statistic I just saw is Minnesota uh, has the, a record low number of license sales across the board. Um, total of you know in, in its in its history this year which is which is concerning to say the least 
there's a lot of things that have contributed to that. Um, you know, in certain places, access is one of them. I think it depends where you live. Um, you know, I would argue in a state like Minnesota or elsewhere. I guess I'm not as familiar with with Pennsylvania and some of those eastern states, but Minnesota or elsewhere. I mean, you're talking a couple million acres of land to go if you want to chase deer and rough grouse. Um, for for pheasants in the in the farmland region, um, we've got a lot of access opportunities uh, plus a new walk and access program for people to do so. Access is absolutely uh, one of the things holding people back. Um, and but I think we're starting to see a resurgence of people connecting with the landscape. Um, I would I would call it sort of that locavore movement. People people are starting again wanting to know where their food is coming from. Um, and reconnecting. And um, we've got a, a lot of great mentorship programs going on. We just got done with one a couple weeks ago where uh, we brought brand new hunters out and, and we did it at a pheasant preserve, kind of a more controlled situation, but um, went over basically, you know, hunting techniques for, for upland hunters and, and uh, different shotguns you can use and provided them kind of a, a base model pump shotgun to take out, uh, you know, you know, along with uh, a hunting vest and that and those types of things and brought them out, um, you know, gave them a tutorial ahead of time, shot some clays, brought them out, did a pheasant hunt on the preserve, cleaned the birds, uh, cooked them afterwards. And it's amazing there, you know, that's not just, that's not just uh, strictly Minnesota. There's a lot of different states doing that right now and, and seeing more people come through the ranks. Um, another demographic would be women. Um, women is the fastest growing, uh, demographic of hunters in the United States, including upland hunters. We're getting a lot of women involved. Um, we've got quite a few, uh, sort of women only chapters, um, that have been started or created over the last three to four years for pheasants forever and quail forever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see. And, and, um, you know, our, our national convention, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, which travels around the country, is is in Minneapolis this year. And it's just, uh, it's inspiring to see how many people are first-time hunters. You know, I just got a dog. I'd love to come to Pheasant Fest. How do I sign up? And I love just sending tickets to those people because um, those are the people that we need on the landscape. And, and having them come to an event like that and, and learn about uh, the traditions of upland hunting is extremely important. Yeah, I would also argue as a counterpoint to the there there's no way to deny that license sales nationally are on have been declining but i would argue that the there is a greater percentage of the people that are buying hunting license that are more active in the hunting community and conservation community um, like my grandfather and his generation for instance you know they would buy hunting license and for pennsylvania and then they would hunt for three or four days in an entire year uh, where mm -hmm. people that are my age you know i'm, I'm 33 and around my age you know we're traveling we're, we're traveling the hunt going to other states um i yeah. spent i easily spent uh over 40 days um in the in the woods and in the fields actively hunting and i've spent well over 125 days doing other activities in the outdoors and and trying to um do some conservation minded things like planting trees and and food plots and doing some management you know yep. techniques and i have many friends who do the exact same thing I would um, totally, totally agree with you. And, and one point I would make, too, is that we need more of those people. I guess you could sort of call them millennials. Um, but, you know, it, it it's how do we I think the big the big ticket answer right now is that we've got a lot of baby boomers who have retired and a lot of baby boomers who are going to stop hunting here pretty soon. And it's how do we how do we fill their fill their shoes um, sort of with a, with a new generation. Cause when those license sales go away, it's, 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 it's going to hurt conservation because as we all know, um, hunters, I think are the original conservationists and, and we're the ones flipping the bill, um, for, uh, conservation in the United States. And, and, you know, I've got a lot of friends that are, you know, one of the things we talk about all the time is I've got a lot of friends that are, 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 are hunters, but, you know, they're also, I've got a lot of friends that are, hikers, bird watchers, and that type of thing. And it's how do we, how do we get them on board either through excise taxes on, on outdoor gear or having them buy a, a, a waterfall stamp, you know, simple things like that to help contribute to the things that, that they love um, that uh, is being paid for by hunters right now, I think is a, is an important question as well. Yeah. And, you know, we've focused a lot of what we've been talking about 
sort of geared towards upland hunting. Um, but like my mother, for example, she has two Britneys at home as well. And uh, the day before Thanksgiving this year, I got off work early and she went with me uh, when I went hunting to watch my dog. She doesn't hunt. She's never had a license, never went through the hunter safety course, but she likes bird dogs and likes watching them do what they're bred to do. So what's your message for people who aren't hunters, but like seeing the birds, the bird watchers, or they have dogs, maybe they don't even want to hunt. What's the message to them to entice them to get them involved with pheasants forever? Um, I think, I, I think the, the, the over, the overarching point would be is that, you know, the habitat that our organization is putting in the landscape, it, it isn't just, it isn't just for hunters. Um, um, you know, right now pheasants forever is in regards to pollinator habitat. Um, we're probably one of the top one, uh, we're in the top three entities in the United States for the amount of pollinator habitat we're putting on the landscape. So that reaches back to, let's say the honey industry, right. Or the almond industry, um, making sure that we've got bees, bees around for the, for the next hundred years, um, in order to, in, in order to pollinate different things, you know, the monarch butterfly, um, the, the different things we're, do, we're doing from them. I mean, by, I think it's by 20 by 2022 or 2023 we're gonna we're gonna be planting uh over a billion milkweed stems which is gonna surpass um the uh the white house under president barack obama uh when he issued a new pollinator action plan um you know doing little things like that i think to to connect with others and and um you know the other thing i'll throw out there is something simple is that make make the ask you know if those people have never been out in the field before you don't know if they like hunting there's no harm in asking if they wanted to go. Um, you know, a perfect situation would be um, even even it doesn't matter if it's a if it's a friend, uh, a relative, an acquaintance, or maybe it's your daughter in some cases. And I, I had that this year. You know, my daughter was always interested. She always asked me if I was going hunting when I put my blaze orange or my camo on. And I I called her one afternoon. I knew it was going to be a nice afternoon this fall in October. And I said, Hey, would you, would you like to go sit in the, in the deer stand with me for about an hour and a half? You're going to have to, you know, try to be quiet, but we'll bring some snacks out there for you and stuff. And well, we ended up, we ended up shooting a little six point buck together. And it was probably the best memory that I've had from this fall. And I've got pictures of her, you know, with her hands over, hands over her head, just in celebration and taking pictures. And, you know, whether she, whether she hunts or not, when she gets older, um, she's going to under, she's going to understand and kind of have that underlying notion of, of what hunting is and what it means to uh, our family in terms of, in terms of food and, and giving back. And um, I have full confidence, even if she doesn't want to hunt when she gets older, that she's going to support conservation initiative of some sort. Yeah, that that's a a great example uh, that that you did this year by just introducing and, like you said, even if she doesn't hunt, um, just understanding the the concept of hunting and the good that conservation groups do. Um, I think that's always something good to have on our side for people that are trying to give back to the outdoors. And one other point, I totally agree. And, and one other point that I would make too, is that, um, you know, one of the, one of the lanes that we've taken now is, um, and, and we're committed to it is providing a, a very strong mentorship program. Um, we do not have enough and i don't care if you're talking upland hunting deer hunting whatever it might be we do not have enough mentors on the landscape that are willing to take uh let's say um in you know a a kid from suburbia or a millennial that wants to get into it um but doesn't quite doesn't quite know how it needs a needs a little instruction um you know uh let's say a, a a female an outdoors woman um, who loves loves hiking and, and loves bird watching and, and fishing and getting outside, but hasn't made the jump, um, you know, to the to the hunting world. Whether it's because of uh, you know in, intimidation, um, money factor, whatever it might be, um, being a mentor and getting those people involved, I think, is probably one of the most important things we can do for the future uh, of conservation in this country. And it'll it'll pay dividends, but we need people stepping up into mentorship programs. Jared, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. And one of the things that we 
uh, I like to do here on the podcast is have a call for action. Uh, I normally let the guest pick what their call to action would be, but today I'm going to force your hand. Uh, just <laughs> we've been we've been talking about um, how great this organization is. So uh, I want your call to action to be uh, getting people interested in Pheasants Forever and joining Pheasants Forever. So can you just recap and tell everyone? how to join and how to get involved in the conservation activities and opportunities that Pheasants Forever provides. Yeah, no problem. Um, so just to recap, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we're the leading upland conservation organization in the United States. Um, you know, we've got 137,000 members, over 780 chapters spread out through uh, every, every, every state in America. Um, you know, if you're interested in getting involved, um, the first way to go about it would be look for a, a local chapter near you. You can log on to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org and right in the middle of the page, click on the find a, find a chapter tab and you can search by uh, city, state, uh, or zip code. Uh, you can get involved that way. Or, um, you know, if you want to tread lightly. Um, you know, an easy way to do it would be to sign up as a member, pheasantsforever.org, um, or you can call our office as well and, and, and talk to membership. But sign up, you'll get uh, five magazines per year, you'll be invited to a local banquet, um, you'll get a calendar, you'll get a decal, which you can display proudly, um, showing that, you, you know, you're a supporter of supporter of conservation and, and public, public lands access that we like to give back to. You're going to get five magazines per year, uh, chock full of all sorts of habitat tips, uh, stories, hunting tips as well, uh, and just conservation-minded uh, news um, that I think uh, is going to show you that, it, you know, pheasants forever, despite what you might see on the logo with a pheasant and a sun and, and think that it's, you know, just just hunters. Um, it's a lot more than that. Uh, it's not just hunters in this organization. Uh, it's it's bird watchers. It's ecologists. It's natural resource professionals all pushing in the same direction um, to put more grassland back on the landscape and, and not just for pheasants and quail and other upland birds, but songbirds, clean water pollinators and all the things that go along with that uh, supporting outdoor traditions that we have uh, here in the United States. Yeah, and I want to point out that with those magazines that you get just from being a $35 member, uh, if nothing else, it's worth flipping through those magazines purely for the pictures that are in them. Um, if you're a dog lover, you're going to freak out over the pictures of the dogs doing the work that that they do it's just awesome photography absolutely amazing photography yeah we i appreciate that and we've got uh, you know if you're interested in becoming a member i would i would encourage you to sign up now and get on our list for the for the spring issue um the spring issue is actually the first uh the first issue that doesn't show a pheasant um, doesn't show a dog. It's just straight habitat. Um, and the, the spring issue, I'm not sure if you've seen it on our Facebook page. It's posted on there right now if you post down. But um, it's, it's an ab absolutely incredible shot of a, of a wetland prairie scene that kind of gives me that tingly feeling when I think about what uh, good habitat looks like. So I would encourage everybody to sign up and, and uh, be a part of the, the movement that's uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Well, Jared, thank you for coming on. This was a great conversation and I appreciate uh, you taking your time. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the chance on us. And uh, if you ever need anything from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, don't be afraid to ask. And now it's time for our call to action. Today's call to action is short and sweet. If you are listening to this and you care about wildlife, join a conservation organization. We've talked to the Quality Deer Management Association. We've talked to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever today, and we will continue to talk to more conservation groups in the future. Just to give you a background on what is out there, there are so many good ones out there. Find one that aligns with what you think is important, what you want to help protect, and join them, support them. Financial support, volunteer your time, volunteer your effort. Anything you can do is going to help wildlife. The first thing you have to do is care. 
The second thing you have to do is join. And then if you have time or the means, help out either financially or by volunteering. That will do it for another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I want to first thank Jared for coming on and telling all of us about what Pheasants Forever has to offer. I am a longtime member of Pheasants Forever. Uh, not not long time like a lot of their members are that have, have been members for, for 20, 30 years, um, but long time in the aspect of ever since I started pheasant hunting and seeing uh, how awesome the birds are, how awesome the landscape can be whenever it's uh, set up to help pheasants thrive. I knew right right at the very beginning I wanted to get involved and wanted to help. Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, we don't have a wild pheasant population anymore, a very limited uh, wild pheasant population. I'm hoping that with a lot of the work of the local chapters of Pheasants Forever that we have in Pennsylvania uh, and some farmers' help, uh, we can bring that population back. One of my favorite pictures from before I was even alive, uh, but one of my favorite family pictures is of my great-grandfather and his friend standing in sort of a bog, in, in a bottom, in a swampy area uh, after a pheasant hunt, and you can see the tail feathers uh, sticking out of their game pouches. Where that picture was taken, that location, is now uh, two gas stations, a bank, uh, a state highway, and a subway, right? So... Uh, just loss of habitat in Pennsylvania is probably the worst thing for them. Uh, last thing I want to do is I want to thank everyone for listening and, and tuning in. Uh, you have no idea how much it means to us that, that there's other people willing to take the time to, to listen to me talk, listen to talent talk, listen to our guests talk about things that we feel are uh, vitally important in our society. And I want to mention one person by name, uh, Jeff. I want to thank you for, for reaching out, Jeff from Catanning. I want to thank you, thank you for reaching out and uh, letting me know uh, that you enjoy the podcast and giving me some uh, content ideas for the future. Uh, we have a lot of stuff planned. Uh, and next week, we have another good conversation taking place with uh, Neil talking about upland bird dogs. So, uh it was a good, fun conversation, and I hope you think the same. So until next week, leave us a review, right? We can reach more people. Give us a rating on iTunes. That would definitely help if you can, if that's your listening platform of choice. But above all else, as always, stay wild. Mm-hmm.